This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay Review, Diary by Sunny Day Real Estate. The thing that I really, really enjoy about this record is that they do not stay in the same place for very long. Kind of using a formula, but in the best possible way. Ferton Squirto, or whatever the hell that is. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Jason Ziak. Jay, on this particular episode, we are going to tackle... Uh, I, this is like playing with fire, because <laughs> this is an album that people are quite passionate about. And yeah. Whenever we get to an album like this, I always get a little nervous... That. Yeah, we we pucker up a little bit. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> tread on some very thin ice uh, with we did our it with uh, guided by voices too, right? Is that the last one we did where we got a little bit nervous? Yeah, that was one where I think that we were um, we were very complimentary about the album, but in doing so, we were less complimentary about the albums that people yeah are much more passionate about. The FBI is investigating the death threats that we received <laughs> that's good but for this particular album i think that if we did piss anybody off we would just get a lot of very emotional poetry written to us in, in handcrafted letters torn out of diaries hint uh of course i'm speaking of sunny real estate's diary that's that's where the diary reference comes from in case that wasn't obvious enough uh, and I mention that because this is considered one of the albums that gave birth to the emo movement, for better or worse. Uh, we'll get into that, whether that's an accurate uh, description or not. But we got a suggestion a while back from Mr. Son Shefchek, Sefchek. Okay, got a little mush mouth here today. Uh, who's a co-worker of yours, Jay, and a uh, friend of ours from going back to Bowling Green. And then we also got a suggestion uh, recently to review uh, Sunny Day Real Estate on iTunes. Uh, N896 left us some positive feedback and suggested that we check out some Sunny Day Real Estate along with some other bands. So, hey, we're getting to some, some uh, Sunny Day Real Estate. So, Jay, you were familiar with Sunny Day Real Estate before this, correct? Yes, sir. Now, were you a longtime fan of the band or was this a band that you came to in the later years later years i would say um, a little prior to rising tide now before you know i think i you know i, I heard these songs are familiar with some of these songs they sort of uh were around and you know either friends were listening to them or, or, or I, I don't even know where maybe not on radio but i i, I had heard them and it sort of had built up familiarity with the band until I think prior to the Rising Tide album coming out that I really kind of put it all together who this band was and you know really got into that record when it came out. Was it possible that you were a fan of the Batman Forever soundtrack and uh, which featured a Sunny Day Real Estate song? No but (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't know it's one of those records I think we've reviewed a couple other ones where it's like you know, somehow I'm familiar with this, but I don't know how because I didn't have, you know, I didn't buy the CD when it came out, and I get, it's in my collection now, but I don't remember where I got it and how I got it, and gotcha. it's just all kind of blurry. Well, we're gonna get into that Batman Forever connection, uh, but first we need to do the history of the band. History of the band. 
So Sunny Day Real Estate formed in Seattle, Washington in 1992 when guitarist Dan Horner met bassist Nate Mendel at the University of Washington. Soon after, drummer William Goldsmith joined the band and several name changes later, they settled on Sunny Day Real Estate. They recorded a demo and a 7-inch but decided to recruit William Goldsmith's high school friend, Jeremy Enoch, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, to sing. Some of the songs that are on their debut record, which is what we're reviewing, Diary, were from before Jeremy was in the band. They had a couple different names, as I mentioned. And then some of them were from after Jeremy joined the band. So there's a bit of a split in terms of when what was written when. Based on those early releases, they signed a sub-pop, and in May of 1994, they released their debut album, Diary. They toured for the rest of 1994 and started working on a new album. But in early 1995, the band broke up. Their second album, which does not technically have a name, it's either referred to as the Pink Album because the cover is pink, or LP2, was released in November of 1995 on Sub Pop. And then I mentioned, as I mentioned, in June of that year, their song 8 was included on the Batman Forever soundtrack, which is actually, if you want a time capsule of halfway through the 1990s, I suggest you look up that soundtrack and see who was on it. It's got U2, PJ Harvey, Massive Attack, Mazzy Star, The Offspring, Nick Cave, uh, Sunny Day, Flaming Lips, along with Method Man, Brandy, Seal, of course Seals, Kiss by Rose, come on people. Uh, it's it's just, it's a perfect, I think, encapsulation of what was going on in the mid-90s. All those different bands and artists pretty much covers it all. Is that the one, the, what was the one that had the Smashing Pumpkin song? I believe... Is that, that movie or... No, that's the next one, which I believe is Batman and Robin. Yes, Batman and Robin came out two years later, and that features uh, Smashing Pumpkins. The end is the beginning is the end. It also features yeah. Bone Thugs and Harmony, R. Kelly, R.E.M., Jewel, the Goo Goo Dolls, Soul Coughing, uh, Underworld. Yeah. So Batman Forever was the one to get for soundtrack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow, yeah. what a dark period. It was a very dark period. What a dark period, period for, for Batman movies and soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sunday Real Estate breaks up. They release the second album. Jeremy Enoch releases a solo album, Return of the Frog Queen, the following year in 1996. And Mendel and Goldsmith join a little band called the Foo Fighters. Now, if you want to know about that history, I would suggest the Foo Fighters documentary Back and Forth. It's a quite revealing look into uh, that history of that band. In 1997, Sub Pop asked the band to collect any rarities they had for a release, and the band put their differences behind and started to work on them, as well as new material. The following year, in September of 1998, the band released How It Feels to Be Something On, on Sub Pop. Uh, Nate Mendel did not return to the band, so he was replaced by Jeff Palmer of the Mommy Heads, who was then replaced by Joe Skyward. 
The band left Sub Pop at the conclusion of their contract, and uh, it was due to a dispute over the release of a live video. They Sub Pop wanted to put out a live video. The band did not like the quality or did, did not agree to uh, the agreement, and they terminated the contract. Well, they decided not to renew their contract, and they signed to BMG subsidiary Time Bomb Recordings. Their fourth album, The Rising Tide, was released in June of 2000 on Time Bomb, and it was re- it was engineered by Lou Giordano. It was shortly thereafter that Time Bomb Recordings went bankrupt, and the band disbanded. Now, since then, Horner has worked with Chris Caraba on dash- Dashboard Confessional songs. Enoch Mendel and Goldsmith formed The Fire Theft. They released an album in 2003 and an EP in 2004. In 2009, the band reunited for shows. And in 2010, Dan Horner indicated that new material was being written, but that nothing has surfaced. So, we are waiting patiently for new Sunny Day Real Estate to to materialize, but none has we did get some Facebook feedback for this record. The suggestor, Mr. Sons, Sean Sefchak. Sean's name is hard to pronounce, by the way. It doesn't look like it would be hard, <laughs> but when you put the, yeah. the Sean and the Sefchak next to each other, yeah. it gets complicated. He says, sweet, sassy, molassy, my favorite. And then continued on, the production is pretty awful. Kind of feels the same as the Sugar albums. Can only listen to it for so long before suffering ear fatigue. The 2010 remasters did help clean that up a lot. Or clean clean a lot of that up. And then Sean Hill said they shredded ears live and Jeremy Enix's voice was as good as the guitars. They turned grunge into emo. Yeah, I said it. I'm not, I, I don't know that we can talk about this album without talking about the whole emo movement of the 90s. Before we do that, I do want to mention, we did actually see Sunny Day Real Estate live. Mm-hmm. Uh, they toured with No Knife for the Rising Tide album, and we saw them over 4th of July weekend in Pontiac, Michigan in, was it 2000? It must, yeah, it must have been 2000 or 2001, somewhere in there. You and I and our uh, fellow bandmates at the time, Heath and Mark, and a couple of significant others drove up. It was a pretty good rock and roll weekend. It was Catherine Wheel and Tracy Bonham in Detroit one night, and then the next night it was Sunny Day Real Estate and No Knife in Pontiac with a stop at a casino in Windsor, Ontario. So the emo stuff. Jay, in looking back at this album, Mm -hmm. here's my question to you. Can you separate the emo wave that followed, both in terms of the the quieter, more confessional emo, and then the like pop punk emo that seems to have been derived a little bit also from Weezer? Pinkerton is described as being a, a key element in the pop punk emo end yeah. of things. And yeah. can you simply listen to Diary and say... Sweet Sassy Molassy, this is a great record, or not? <laughs> yeah, I can for sure. I, you know, I, it's it's really interesting now to, to go back and listen to it and think of it in the context of the the comment that, you know, this turned grunge into, you know, I think you can hear that in here in a lot of ways now. More so probably from the 
you know, musically, this reminded me at times of the first Pearl Jam record. Um, I know it might sound a little strange, but if you listen to the dynamics of the uh, the drums and some of the, even some of the guitar parts, um, you know, they're rooted, they're very um, active, um, you know, dynamic, dramatic. Um, you know, the guitar line they have um, intermingle these either picking parts, big chords, or uh, you know, melodic lines. Um, that I think the first, first and a little bit of the second Pearl Jam record, obviously vocally, this is completely different, mm-hmm. uh, which really I, I like a lot. And also, I think has been his style has been um, tried to people have tried to emulate it, you know, in the, in the I think in the emo world, and not and nobody's really been able to pull it off. He's got a range, um, both you know from a, just from an emotional emotive standpoint. Um, and from a you know a, a technique standpoint that that most singers in the genre just don't do not have, and it, and it all comes together for me into being way more, well, you know obviously original. You know they're they're starting it, but uh, way more interesting, particularly when we think about when this came out and what else was going on. You know, um, I think you know musically you hear the the combination of some of the the emo elements of combining rhythm section that's be a little bit more rooted in hardcore and post-hardcore you know techniques and and timing and and rhythm and then guitar guitar playing that's you know maybe a little bit more classic rock influence but also you know bringing in some angular elements um also from post from post-hardcore and hardcore music and a vocal that's you know very emotive you know it uh you know, I like it quite a bit. I think it's a really cool little piece of history to kind of look at and then think about what was going on at the time and what came after it. It's interesting that you mentioned the, I guess, the tension that's going on within the band. And I, I'm wondering if that had anything to do with why three of the four members formed the fire theft without Jeremy Enoch afterwards. Mm-hmm. Because I, I really feel like there's competing ideologies almost within this band in that you do have a very like classic rock, you know, at times I hear early dinosaur junior in the guitar playing. And then mm-hmm. at times it's, it's very, you know, what you would think of in, in terms of the like, Fugazi and, and that sort of thing. But then his vocal is just so different than anything. It's like floating above yeah, everything yeah. that's going on, which is not what you think of when you're thinking of terms of like the aggressiveness of, I guess post hardcore, and then you know a lot of the bands that they are supposedly are, are followers of theirs, whether it's the like Promise Ring or Saves the Day or Get Up Kids, those sorts of bands. I don't hear anybody really doing any of the elements of what they're doing. I almost hear, I mean, musically for, at times there's some polvo I can hear with the guitar stuff because they. Mm-hmm. The thing that I really, really enjoy about this record is that they do not stay in the same place for very long, but they do it effortlessly. You know, from the opening song, which has these great start-stop dynamics, they're shifting between regular time and halftime. They're jumping around. I'm sure they're jumping around in time signatures, messing around with stuff like that too, but it doesn't sound forced or contrived.
sounds like a band that was just like riding a wave of creativity and coming up with and i don't know that they ever really captured it quite the same way i think that how it feels to be something on is a really good record um Mm -hmm. it gets a little mellow for me at times yeah whereas i think when the when they get mellow on here it almost provides like a breath of fresh air because some of these songs especially the first three songs seven it just it's a great opener yeah in circles has that great bass line that nate mendel's playing Mm -hmm. and it has just dan horner's just playing that really effective just it's it's a two note two note lead the drums come on come in the bass line comes in it's perfect song about an angel almost reminded me of hum in the sense that it has this really slow build it gets really noisy and it but it it's interesting like it never gets aggressive it gets loud almost in a hum the way that hum is channeling the loudness of like a my bloody valentine um Mm -hmm. it kind of works in that same area and they just do that over and over again in song to song but without sounding cliched or like they're repeating themselves and it's just it's it's so fresh, especially when you're considering what was coming out in 1994. It's it. I imagine this was kind of a shock, in a way, because when you would think of like, I don't know, 94, like you said, it's like the second Pearl Jam album. Mm-hmm. They were really honing their skill in terms of writing pop songs, and you know, then you're starting to get into like, Alice in Chains, Dirt, and Stone Temple Pilots, and. I think it's that super unknown for Soundgarden. I mean, you've got a lot of bands that could have been seen as influences on this band, but we're going in a completely different direction. They're, they're taking a much more song-oriented approach, whereas I think this band is taking a much more like album-oriented approach and atmospheric-oriented approach, where they're really going for what does it feel like we should go be going for 
in this part rather than what's the big chorus. Because it's even though there's not a lot of sing-along choruses, it's still really melodic. And you sure, can, yeah. you, you can you can grasp onto particular parts that he's singing, even if I have zero clue what he's singing. Yeah, I mean, there's some choruses on this album where they're memorable, but you're still often like what the hell is he saying yeah and it also introduces that uh, uh that element of the second like counter melody idea um mm-hmm. that you you hear a lot in you know the emo that came after this um, sometimes it's a little screamy or you know the delivery is different than his his is you know more of a you know melodic line and there'll be a counter to that that's a little bit more uh you know quicker uh just trying to throw like another line in there behind it and yeah, I think the the first couple songs in this record, really through, I, I would almost say through one through five, is it you know them at their best and them really kind of using a formula, but in the best possible way. And you kind of hear the duality of the band, so you hear that this use of um, you know a guitar that's picking either a simple one or you know uh, three chord, or I'm sorry, two or three chord pattern, and then introducing a rhythm that is kind of unexpected but still very tight and then the second guitar sometimes will it'll wander between those those two different ideas and so one t- you know for for part of the song it'll play off of the the uh, the bass and drum part and then other the other part of the song will shift over and kind of play off the other guitar and that kind of like floats back and forth throughout those songs and then of course his voice just because what it is tonally can float above all that and he can kind of you know as you listen to it he's picking and choosing spots where he can you know bring his voice in and, and tie all that together um create you know kind of vocal hooks here and there to um you know draw you in and and to me those first five songs really illustrate what what it is about their sound um that makes them unique and makes it work i i do have to say though that after that I find tracks six through eleven, so starting with blankets, where the stairs, through sometimes it starts to feel a little underdeveloped. With songwriting for me, I think shadows, which is right in the middle of all that, mm-hmm. is actually really well written. Um, yeah, it's a it's a song that uh, uses that phrase, you know, in the shadows uh, throughout the verse, and they mix it up. It it's kind of uh, when you look into it, fresh years and or maybe in the first time if you've never heard it, uh, it starts off kind of quiet using this phrasing and chord pattern. And then it gets louder. And, it, and in most bands, that would be the chorus. You know, it's, it would be considered, hey, let's just write a simple song where we maybe use the same chords for the verse and the chorus and a, you know, a repeating a phrase, and it'll end up being, you know, a two-minute long song. But then they go into this whole other part, which is even, you know, it's a, a whole different chord structure, different melody and everything and it doesn't sound tacked on like it all works together so it's just this really kind of clever way to to create a vocal hook and a memorable memorable line but you know can put it into the structure of you know almost a five minute long song um, where you get this next level you know i think oftentimes we talk about songs that you're intrigued and pulled in but they don't go anywhere mm-hmm. and this is a great example of it goes somewhere and a lot of these a lot of these songs go somewhere. Mm-hmm. 
even some of these ones I'm a little bit critical of in the middle. You know, they'll kind of start off slow and they'll end up building to a course that's pretty interesting. So they're still worth the listen. It's just I feel like, you know, the first core of the album, the end of the album, and then that song in the middle are so strong that some of the others get uh, they get swallowed up in that and just become a little bit forgettable. Uh, did you get the same feeling? or? Yeah, and I, I wanted to mention track five, which is uh, called 47. The guitar lead on that song, it almost reminded me of like something Coldplay would write. Like It's yeah, so yeah. anthemic that if they had been playing around in a different uh, time period, they probably could have turned that into like a huge single with that, just that based off of that guitar lead. Sure. And it's, it's, it's so simple. With, uh, it's up there with a lot live. I mean, if you think about, you know, how important that guitar lead is to that song, mm-hmm. it's the same kind of, uh, it's the same kind of uh, quality melody and the way that they intertwine it. It's a theme through the whole song. You know, they intertwine it through the verse. He brings it back through the chorus it's just, it's really, really smart. think and i agree with you once you hit the blankets were stairs which is the first time i believe that they introduce acoustic guitars on the mm-hmm. record it slows down a lot and i do like there's a in the chorus of that song there's like this weird two note either keyboard part or guitar part that's like real low and it's kind of creepy sounding it sounds like it's mm-hmm. out of like a horror movie or something um, but it's pretty cool and it, it there are it, it starts to become I really like this song too. I really like the parts of certain parts of this song. And I, I agree yeah. with you on Shadows. That's that's the definitely in the back half of the album is the best song. What happens is you get to track seven, which is, to me is kind of a throwaway track. The that piano song. song. Yeah. yeah, that that to me could have been the hidden track on the album. Track ten, Grendel. 
for the most part, the it's it's kind of an atmospheric song, and there's affected vocals in the verse sections. Mm-hmm. Again, it's another one where I'm like, this is kind of experimental. I don't really care for this. You, if you take those two songs out, you and you just went from the blankets were stairs, the shadows to forty eight to sometimes, and this was a nine song album. I think it would be damn perfect. Mm-hmm. It would it would it would crescendo, and then sort of slowly release and then when you hit sometimes it's a slow song but it has a big ending to that song and they, and it's a perfect sort of album ender for this band but i almost feel like it goes on a little bit too long because almost every song on this record except for that piano song is four and a half plus minutes mm-hmm. these are these are these are not i guess you'd say you know condensed songs which is completely fine there are lots of interesting parts going on mm-hmm. but once you're getting into the slower one, slower songs where there's you there's only so much dynamic you know room you have when you're playing at a very slow tempo yeah i know you can double time it which they do but for the most part once you get into those slower songs they're not doing that yep and that just sort of that kills the momentum towards the end i just i just feel like a little editing or re- just rearranging at the end of the record would have helped just to make it cuz i did find myself drifting off because it hits you so hard, and and the, yeah. like you said, the first five songs. It's so it's just, sharp at the beginning. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's a debut. I mean, this is a debut record. I mean, this is sure. that's pretty impressive to right out the it, gate just pound you with, you know, five really incredible tracks. And I, and I would imagine a debut record, maybe drawing from my own experience, that's probably the hardest one to edit down because everybody's, mm-hmm. you know, everything's new and exciting, and I'm sure. You know, to them, all of this sounds, it's all super valid and just, you know, they want it all out there. Just politically navigate that when you're just starting a band of like what songs aren't going to make it and which ones are. You know, that's probably not a difficult, that's that's a very difficult decision, I would imagine, with a debut. As it goes on, you know, as the band goes on, that becomes easier, um, I would would think, as the, you know, who, who's in control and who makes decisions and just everybody being a little, having a little bit more perspective and maturity, that becomes maybe a little bit easier to do, so kind of see why maybe some of the stuff ended up on here and it does pick up at the end i think tra- uh tracks it's so confusing with this album because there's so many songs with numbers in it <laughs> but tracks 12 and 13 which are called eight and nine no uh, wait what there's only 11 songs in this album oh well, what are 12 and 13 on spotify with bonus tracks those must be bonus tracks from the re-release because the song eight is on the pink album oh because i knew those songs and i'm like what let me, let me see what you're looking at. I mean, I was familiar with with, uh, with nine. Let me see. Maybe eight because it was. You said that was on the soundtrack for Batman Forever. I was I was pretty familiar with both of these songs. Um, track eight is on the song eight. Track eight is on the Pink album. Track nine must have been. I don't know what that that out what that's from, but that must have been on the re-release from 2010. Huh. Well, anyway, those are good. If you experience the album now, they are part of the album. So at least on Spotify, they are. So, uh, and that one's really dynamic, and it's got a, a tom part to it, and even does a vocal thing that has kind of an eastern flair to it. Oh yeah, kind of uh, so, the song eight is one of my favorite <laughs> Sunny Day Real Estate songs. That's the song that's on the Batman Forever soundtrack. Yeah. Okay. So that's where that comes from. So in context of this this uh this version of the record it does pick up there at the end and 
that if you're saying the original version ended with sometimes, that's unfortunate because that song is, I mean, for me, it's just boring. It's really slow and it doesn't do much for me. Well, I, I guess I thought that it was an appropriate ending because it, it ends big. Okay. Which I kind of liked. But I, I would see, yeah, if you had eight and nine, which I haven't actually listened to nine yet, so I'll have to, um, I didn't know that that song existed. Uh, we're going to have to get it together on our, what version of the album we're listening to before we, <laughs> before we do these. And these song t- I'm telling you, these song titles with num- the numbers is killing me. I mean, yeah. track one is called seven, but it's the word seven. Track five is 47, but the letter's 47. Track nine is 48. And then in the version I'm looking at, track 12 and 13 are the songs eight and nine. You're like, oh, my head's spinning with all the math here. And then on the Rising Tide, they have a song called One, which is spelled out. Yeah. And then on the yeah. song on How It Feels to Be Something On, they have Two Promises and 100 Million. <laughs> and on the, song, on, the, on the LP2, or the Pink Album, they also have a song called Five Four, along with Eight. So... <laughs> but you know, part of the reason why the, the Pink album is has those names is because um, they they didn't finish the album before they broke up. So Jeremy Nick went in and he basically made up the lyrics on the spot, and some of them are just no, like he's not saying any words; he's just sort of making sounds. Gotcha. So it's not quite as uh, uh, it's not well thought out. Let's put it that way. So it was like, what's this song called? Well, it doesn't have any lyrics, so we'll just call it eight. Ten. Or nine. And I love the album cover for this record. Oh, with the little so, figures? Yeah, yeah, it's just so different for the 90s. Like, you look at that, and I don't, you know, I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't have grungy type on it or, like, a, a weird black and white photo, like, macro photo of, like, a bug or something. It's, like... <laughs> <laughs> totally different it's colorful it's kind of it has a little bit of a sense of humor to it you know i think it makes a, a commentary about you know modern life or what have you but it's just it's just i don't know i think it complements the record really well and it's just right it's kind of kind of fun so now i'm interested to hear your rating because I, I, you know you have those other songs if if you're just rating it up to sometimes which is the original release mm. how are you rating this record oh i'm st- i'm still gonna give it a, a you know full record recommendation you know I, I like like i said tracks one through five and i really like shadows i think there's some things that happen in the other songs that are really cool i just like i said the other ones are so so sharp and and so show such a sophisticated songwriting ability that you know i i would get a little bit let down you know that, that some of the others weren't pulled together that that much but uh I, I think it's a worthy album. I, you know, I don't turn those songs off. I just find myself sort of phasing, you know, fading out. My attention fades from them. I'm not like annoyed by them or dislike them. Well, I don't like Grendel or Furton Squirto or whatever the hell that <laughs> Furton Skirto. Yeah. Uh, so that cuts me down up. to nine yeah. songs. Wow, I'm like, I'm like on the edge here. I guess I'm going with an album because. I could do without track nine, which is 48, mm-hmm. which then takes me to eight songs, I believe. And I guess that that works as an album, an eight song album. Yeah. I mean, to me, if you're if you're in eight or nine in songs, that's, you know, in the 70s, that's an album. <laughs> Back well, when the bands made really good albums, that was a good album. Uh, you know, right. Great. We have to grade a little bit on the curve here because everybody, it seemed in the 90s, included way too many songs. So. 
you know, if we always go, there needs to be 12 great songs. That's just not going to happen very much. So here's my question, though. You know, this is a really beloved album. Obviously, it, it's like we mentioned, it's seen as a, a launching point for a lot of bands. But often when you reference a particular album or band as a launching point for a lot of bands, that particular album was never really that successful in the mainstream. I'm thinking of like the Velvet Underground yeah. and Nico or Iggy and the Stooges, you know, those sorts of albums where they're really beloved by musicians and music critics, but they didn't get a lot of mainstream coverage. Um, mm-hmm. Sunny Day Real Estate seemed to gradually enter the mainstream a little bit more after they reunited. I started hearing them on you know alternative radio in the late 90s with How It Feels to Be Something On, and then The Rising Tide got a little bit of publicity, I think. Um, Killed by an Angel was played quite a bit. Yes. Alternative radio. So does this album have a single that was ignored, or do you think that this being sort of a, a cult classic in the vein of those other albums, but seen as highly influential, does that stick? Do you think that that's appropriate? No, I, I think that's appropriate. I think we both agree that 47 is a song and, and maybe even shadows. I mean, there's a couple of songs on here that if they got the proper promotion, I don't see why they couldn't have been hits. Uh, his vocal may have been a, a problem, you know, at that time, just it's so different. I mean, it sounds like a little bit like John Anderson from yes. <laughs> that was not <laughs> that was not cool you know to a lot of or at least i mean it was i should say it wasn't cool it wasn't what you know radio at that time was looking for you know and, and they probably were a little bit thrown off by that unfortunately because I, I i think this would have been a breath of fresh air in terms of uh alternative radio at the time but it probably you know what we're looking at is this album comes out a lot, like you said a lot of musicians listen to it really get in love what they're doing a lot of the ideas start to get picked by other bands. And, you know, as those bands are doing interviews and talking and saying, you know, what, what, what are your influences? Who are you in? You know, who you're into? They're watching this band and fans read that. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure that's probably how I heard about them. Um, and that builds up over the course of, you know, almost you know, six, seven years or so. So by the time they kind of come back together and, and do the reunion, there's a little bit more just organic sharing of, of who this band is and why they're important. So at that point, you know, I think the everything's primed. Music uh, world is primed a little bit more to accept them and, you know, get into them a little bit more. And for the people who are unfamiliar with Sunny Day Real Estate at this point, are there current bands or bands from recent years that you think would be a good entry point? One that came to mind especially on their first record, is Arcade Fire. I think that mm. they sort of... I think musically, they're almost in a little bit of an opposite direction in that the Arcade Fire like to find a rhythm or beat and drive it oh, you know, endlessly, almost mm-hmm. hypnotically. But in terms of the vocal, I feel like there's a lot of similarity in, in like the big anthemic vocal uh, that... Jeremy Enoch does in his own weird, unique, you know, yes, roundabout kind of way. Some of the other bands are like cursive. I think there's some cursive elements to, or some elements of cursive that I hear in Sunday Real Estate and vice versa. Yeah. Um, Sparta, which haven't put out anything in the last couple of years, but were together in the mid 2000s. You know, I mentioned Hum, Built a Spill. 
This is a band that's always around and yep. putting out stuff. And then some of the, you know, Promise Ring and Braid have gotten back together. So I know that those bands have. But I'm sure that if you were listening to Promise, Brand, Promise Ring and Braid, you were probably listening to Sunny Day yeah, Real I mean, Estate. Those, guys, I, those bands are contemporaries with them, and they sort of took a different angle on uh, some of, the, I guess, the sim- similar ideas, but they're, I would say, more on the pop end of what he became. And that's what I think most of the commercial bands now that are still doing it, like, say, a Fall Out Boy, or, you know, Taking Back Sunday or whatever slew mm-hmm. of, like, emo-influenced, you know, modern rock bands. That's, I think, where they tend to connect to. I think the thing that makes Sunny Day a little bit more unique is just, you know, they play in slower tempos and, and still do really interesting, you know, dynamic things. And a lot of those other bands... You know, it's usually pretty fast, and, and it's more about you know higher energy, and uh, they're not quite like that, which kind of puts them, you know, a little bit of a different space, I think. So, you know, maybe maybe for people who are into like band of horses or that kind of stuff, maybe you could kind of get into this. Just you know, it's a little bit more interesting, a little bit the word I'm looking for, Cere- cerebral. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and atmospheric, and it has elements like that that a lot of those other bands uh, that are doing the pop emo thing. You know, it's all just about dynamics and and hooks and overly sometimes overly whiny vocals and that that sort of thing. So, two other bands I wanted to mention: My Vitriol. They're a hmm. British band. I think they're British. Yeah, they're from the UK. They have a an a, an element that they have an atmosphericness to their guitar. That mm-hmm. is a little bit more shoegazy, I guess. But yep. I, I, th- I think, especially on the Fine Lines record, I think you can listen to that record and find some musical similarities. And the other one is um, the first. I don't. I think it's the first. It might. It's one of the early Cave In records. That reminds me a little bit of what's going on. I think some of the earlier, early like '90s stuff is a little bit more hardcore, more yelling and stuff like that. But if you listen to the Jupiter record, which after that, then they kind of went a little more straight ahead with their songwriting yeah sort of that particular record though i think if, if you're a fan of cave in and that particular album which i know there's some big fans of that record uh, fortunately we'll never get to review it because it came out in 2000 so it's off our radar but i would highly suggest checking out uh, sunny day if you're into cave in especially that era the uh i don't know if you're familiar with the band engine down but they're a band that um, if you I have more people listening to this podcast that are actually familiar with uh, uh, Sunny Day <laughs> and then all these other bands are listening. So if you're into Sunny Day, uh, Engine Down does a lot of what I was talking about, you know, um, sort of similar combination of, of that uh, really tight rhythm stuff with interesting guitar over top of it. And, you know, it, uh, it reminds me a lot of them and No Knife the band we saw them with there's some elements of, of that in there and I'm trying to think Shiner maybe a little bit too mm-hmm. uh, yeah definitely maybe a little bit more prog at times they get a little bit more technical well I think that covers our review of Sunny Day Real Estate and their debut album Diary if you like what you heard please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes and we'll uh, mention you on the show and uh, that's it for me and Jay We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Wow.
feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.